Our reading today is from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out their speech, night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no speech, there is no words. Their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises to from one end of the heavens of the circles of the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making their eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than abundance of pure God, and sweeter than honey, dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them, there is an abundant reward. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults, for I will overkeep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will, bla- I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the mediation of my heart be accepted to you, Lord. Lord, my dog and my redeemer, thanks for this reading for today. Sorry, Psalm 19 gives us two books that talk about God, two uh, source documents, if you will, that are two witnesses that call us to worship God, nature and scripture. And so today I want to be looking, uh, we're going to be looking at, at these two books and how they write and, and speak about God's glory, the book of nature and the book of God's word. Because both of these books help us to glorify God. And so we're going to start first with the first six verses, which tell us about uh, nature's book, the, the book of nature that calls us to come and worship God. The psalmist tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out forth speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. Um, and the, in verse 4, the message has gone out to the whole earth. Their words to the ends of the world. 
uh, and then he speaks about how the sun travels across the sky and, and, it, uh, and it's this wonderful thing. Now, when we look at the eloquence of nature, we see the wonderful way in which nature actually proclaims God's glory. The psalmist calls us to look at the vastness of the heavens, the, the expanse. They, they speak of how big God is. And just to give us a bit of a sense of how big the, the universe is, how big this is, uh, expanse is, um, I'll, I'll, we'll run a thought experiment together. Now, in our family, we, if, we, if all of us jump in our car and we started in Perth and we wanted to drive across Australia, uh, if we didn't stop, it would take us somewhere between 40 and 50 hours. You know, Australia is a big country, is it not? You know, it's um, the, the joke of, of a lot of our uh, European immigrant friends uh, that when people come and visit them, they'll say things like, oh, I'm flying into Sydney, can you pick me up? Uh, because in, you know, Holland, it's the max you can drive is like two hours, and then you're out of the country. Here, you drive for 50 and you're still in the same country. It is a big place. But Australia takes up only about 5% of the surface area of the earth. So the earth is pretty big. But as big as the earth is, uh, it is pretty small in comparison to other things. The earth fits into the sun 1.3 million times. So you can put 1.3 million earths inside the sun. So the sun is pretty big. But as big as the sun is, it pales in comparison to what we think is the largest star that we've yet find, uh, found. It's called UY Scuti. Now, it's just a fun word to say. But the sun fits into UY Scuti five billion times. So to give you a sense of just how big that is, um, the sun is one pixel on that page and UY Scuti is that big star. It fits into, uh, the sun fits into that one, uh, five billion times. But not only is space, uh, things in space huge, the space between things in space is huge. So when the moon is at its furthest distance from the earth, if you lined up all our planets end to end next to each other, they would actually fit between earth and the moon. So you can fit in Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, uh, all the rest, you can pile them on end to end, including Pluto, uh, because I believe Pluto is a planet, um, and they would fit between the Earth and the Moon. It doesn't seem right, but it's actually true. And the furthest made man-made thing from the Earth right now is the Voyager 1 space probe. You can probably take that off, Isaac, thanks. Uh, it currently is about 21 billion kilometres away from Earth, and it exited our solar system in 2012. At the time, it was travelling at 61,000 uh, kilometres an hour. And even at that speed, it took it 35 years to get uh, to where it is. So space is huge. The universe is massive. The point is, the vastness of the universe speaks about God's bigness, his immensity, his mighty power. For he is the one who created it all. The bigness of creation tells us about the bigness of God. But it's not just the bigness of creation, it's the regularity of creation. The psalmist talks about how the days come 
Day after day, night happens again and again. The seasons come and go. The sun travels the same course every day. Uh, you can predict pattern, patterns. You can keep time. You can uh, plant and harvest. There are seasons. They talk about how God has brought order out of chaos. And then the psalmist speaks especially about how God um, has given us the sun, this wonderful uh, gift from God. It warms the earth, it provides light. You know, as the sun shines on us as it is this morning, it is the thing that powers our world. Uh, it shines on our planet, it feeds our plants which produce our oxygen, it feeds either the things we eat or the things that eat the things we eat. Um, the sun doesn't just keep on shining though. The reason it keeps existing is because it is a gift from God. It is upheld by his power. The reason the earth doesn't just stop spinning on his axis is because God has ordained it that way. And all of these things shout this continual message of praise. A, a, a song that sings, look at God and give him glory. Look at his bigness. And recognize his majesty. Look at the order of things and recognize his intention. See in nature that God has created the world and turned to him for worship. It's for this reason that as the book of Romans opens, Paul says um, that nature declares God's glory. And, you know, we often get asked the question uh, as, as ministers or people that are leading people, they, that we often get asked the question, what about those people in the world who never have the chance to hear about, about God, about Jesus? Well, the point the psalmist is making here is that those people don't exist because God, through nature, reveals his glory to everyone so that no one is without excuse. Nature is this eloquent witness that speaks of God's bigness. So then what do we do with this book of nature? What do we do as humans with this call to come and worship God? When we see nature, how does humanity respond? Do we turn and give praise to God as the psalmist calls us to do? Well, the answer is, of course, no, we don't. And we don't because our hearts are broken and we have been corrupted. Our, our nature is fallen. And so when we see the nature out there, the nature in here does not give glory to God. So we respond to nature out there in one of three different ways. We either worship it or we abuse it or we ignore the message nature gives us. So let's look at those three things, worshipping nature. Now the problem is when we hear the call to nature, nature is calling continually to come and worship, right? It's calling us to, to see and to come and worship. And indeed, many of us, uh, many people around the world come, hear the call to worship, and they come and worship, but they don't worship the one to whom nature is giving uh, the message, uh, about whom nature is giving the message. They come to worship, but they don't worship God, they worship nature itself, the ancient cultures were particularly prone to this. Virtually every culture that has existed uh, in the ancient world worshipped the elements of nature in some sort of way. And particularly they worshipped often 
the sun as this really important thing. You know, Egypt had Ra, the sun god. Uh, the Aztecs built temples to the sun and, and pyramids in honor of the sun. Inti was the Incan god of the sun. In Canaan, in Canaan which, which is where Israel ended up, Shapash was the god of the sun. For the Greeks, it was Helios. For the Romans, Sol. For the Germanic tribes, it was Sunna, which is actually where we get our word sun from. The ancients looked at nature, heard the call to come and worship, and they worshipped. But they worshipped the nature itself. And even as we saw a few weeks ago, we can be prone to that too. Modern day people are falling back into this trap to worship nature. When we put nature above God, when our environmental agendas go beyond the creation care that God instructs of us, where we seek the good of the environment above the good of mankind. But what I think is come, becoming particularly uh, common today is us reverting back actually to what the ancient cultures did. Particularly in the New Age movement, we see this drive to connect to the land. The environment is ever more sacred, even divine. You go for a hike to commune with nature. And that's nothing more than to return to the culture, the ancient cultures, to worship the world. Hearing the call of nature to come and worship and then to worship nature itself. That is one of the ways in which we can respond. Or we can abuse nature. The second response to the, to the book of nature, to the call that nature gives us to come and worship God, is simply to abuse nature. You see, if our heart is broken, and because our heart is broken we hate God, and nature calls us to say, come and worship God, it's no surprise then actually that we might want to silence and destroy the nature that calls us to come and worship Him. We can destroy nature instead of, um, of worshipping God whom it calls us to. At uh, human beings are incredibly good at destroying nature, silencing this call to worship. As I write this, about 80% of the forests that the world has had is gone. We lose about 375 square kilometres of forest a day. According to some sources, we are losing about 1,700 acres of productive land to the desert, to, to, to becoming desert every hour. There is a part of the Pacific Ocean that is three times the size of France. It's called the Great Pacific garbage patch. It looks like this. Uh, this is what it looks like. Three times the size of France. No one looks at that and cries out to God in worship. We can silence the witness of the book of nature simply by abusing it. And we do. And so nature calls us to worship and we can respond by worshipping it. Or we can silence the call by abusing nature. Or we can simply ignore the call that nature gives us. A couple of days ago, it was a perfect sunny day. It was very much like this one. It was just one of those perfect days you get towards the end of winter. You know, it's not quite springtime yet. But an early springish day like this one appeared. 
Outside, it's a lovely 21 degrees, and as the sun shines down, you can hear the birds twittering in the trees. And you get the sense of the new life budding in the trees. They're just about to burst through the branches, but they're holding on to this explosion of life for just a few more weeks because it's not quite springtime yet. It's, it's almost magical, right? And on this magnificent and glorious day, I was in my front of my computer playing my new computer game. Curtains down because, you know, the sun, the reflections, no good. As the world is set up right now, we can ignore the call to come and worship God we find in nature so easily. As I was preparing this message, I read something in one of my commentaries, and I, I wish I could find it again because it got lost, um, but he, uh, so I could quote it properly, but it got lost in the library somewhere again. But the commentator said something like this, it's that we humans are blessed above all the animals who go about on four, four legs, because they, by their very design, are cursed to look down and maybe forward. But human beings, being upright, have our eyes drawn upward into the heavens, to the vastness of the heavens, to give glory to God. But what has happened in our world is that our books, our internet, our games and iPads and phones and things have pulled our eyes from up there to down here so we can ignore the message that nature pours forth day after day to come and worship God. And so, friends, put down the Nintendo and go for a walk. Hear nature's call to come and worship, but don't worship nature, don't abuse it, don't ignore it, but turn to God and respond by worshipping him. That's what the book of nature does. But there's something that nature cannot do, and that is to call us to worship God specifically with words. The psalmist himself actually acknowledges, he says in verse 3, there is no speech, there are no words, no voice is heard. So we actually need something more than just the book of nature if we are to come and worship God properly. But thankfully, we do have that. We have the book of God's word, the scriptures, the Bible. And so scripture gives us this witness, and I read here from verse uh, 7. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the experienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. And the ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. So this is the second book that calls us to worship God. It speaks about the glory of God's word. And so the psalmist gives us a whole bunch of different nouns to describe it. It's his instruction, his testimony, his precepts, his commands, the fear of the Lord, the ordinances, and so on. So I want to just look very briefly at each of these, uh, th these things. So the instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. Now God's Word does have instructions for us about how to live. It tells us what to do with our lives, how we are to prioritize things, what sins to avoid, and so on. But the psalmist tells us that these instructions are perfect. Friends, is that really how we see God's law? I mean, sometimes it feels a bit restrictive, doesn't it? 
too binding, like a, a jacket that's too tight. Because we don't actually want to obey God's instruction. When we actually read the instruction manual to life, we think, hmm, I'd really like to do what's on the other side of that boundary. And that's because our hearts are broken. But the psalmist says that when you do this, it renews your life. Living inside of God's law is an act of faith that says the boundaries that God has put around us are good and they are there for a reason and we're going to stick inside those boundaries because when we do, it is good for our life. And when we step outside of them, we actually die a little bit. The wages of sin are death. It's never good to step outside of God's instruction. And it never goes well and sin never pays off in the long run. So the instruction of the Lord is perfect. It renews your life. And the testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. Now, a testimony is a witness, right? It's a story about what God has done. And what the psalmist is saying here is that you can trust what God says in his word. The story of God's word, the story of who God is, is, is trustworthy. So we don't need to listen to the outside sources. We don't need to listen to the doubts of the people around us. If you want to be wise, don't listen to the world. If you want to be wise, listen to God's word. It goes on to say, The precepts of the Lord are right. They make the heart glad. Now a precept is a, um, it's like a rule of, of thought or behaviour. When we order our lives around God's word, the psalm says our hearts will be glad. I don't think it is surprising that we suffer as a world vastly more from depression, from anxiety, from all kinds of um, these kinds of maladies where the heart is not glad when we have jettisoned God's word. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. We, we sing this in a song, don't we? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word uh, is, is something that shines and illuminates our lives. It gives us a way of seeing things the way they really are. We can see spiritual realities like sin and death, like our need for salvation our need for Christ, like our inability to live godly lives because of God's word. It is radiant. It shines in the darkness of the, the spiritual darkness that grips the world. We kind of need spiritual enlightenment, if you like. And God's word provides that light. And then he says, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. When you see the spiritual truths revealed to us in God's word, we develop a righteous fear of the Lord. Uh, a deep awe and respect for who God is. In that we humbly recognize that we're not pure before the Lord, that we need his help, that he doesn't need us, but that he makes us right with him through Jesus Christ. There is nothing worthy in us to say to God, you must accept me because look at all these wonderful things I've done. Now what happens when we, when we study God's word is that we develop a fear of the Lord, a right fear of the Lord, 
that causes us to come to him in humility. It humbles us because it gives us a peek into God's character, his love, his worthiness, his majesty, and it shows us who we really are, not that. And it puts us on our knees and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so when the psalmist thinks of all these things together, the, the instructions, the testimony, the precepts, the commands, the ordinances and so on, when he thinks of all these things, he cannot help himself. He thinks of all these things and then in verse 10 he says, Therefore, God's word is more desirable than gold, than the abundance of pure gold and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. Now, friends, the psalmist only had the Old Testament, right? He didn't have the story of Jesus, the fulfillment of what the law, these laws were meant to point him to. And so for us, God's word is even more precious than this, even more than gold, than all the gold in the world, sweeter than the sweetest thing that existed in those days. It is even more precious to us because not only does it show us God's law and our inability to keep the law but more importantly the God's word the Bible shows us the one who kept the law perfectly for us our new Adam Jesus were it not for God's word we would still be lost in our sin worshiping the Son. enemies of God but he gave us his word which shows us Jesus we have the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has come to do for us, to live a perfect life in our place, to, to die the death that we deserved, so that our lives can now be marked in, in, in response to that as, um, as in service to him, as we live for him because of what he's done for us. Indeed, God's word is more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. It gives us light and life. And so how do we respond to God's word? You know, we've, before we looked at how we respond to nature's call to worship God. You can either worship nature, you can abuse nature, or you can ignore its call. So how do we respond to the Bible, to the word's witness, the word that invites us to come and worship God? How do we respond? Well, actually, I think it's in exactly the same way. We can worship the Word, or we can abuse the Word, or we can ignore the Word. Worshipping the Word, I think, is a great danger for Christians like us. Because we can so elevate the Bible that, the, that we miss the one the Bible is pointing to. Scripture itself can become an idol and a trap, particularly, I think, for reformed Christians. Because we have a tendency, friends, do we not, to believe that if we think right about God, we are right with God. When we have our theology figured out, we've got God figured out. And that leads to a cold and almost intellectual pride where we miss out on worshipping God because we think we've got him all figured out. Did you see what happens there? When you have figured something out, you are the Lord of that thing. And so when we figured out God, we are the Lord of God. 
What does this look like? I think one of the most common ways we see this is thinking that the sermon is the, mo- is the only part of a worship service worth coming to. Because we worry more about getting the word than worshipping God who gives us the word. Or we can hide behind our understanding of scripture which is strong and good but to cover up a deeply immoral life. Hiding it from everyone around us, making sure that the people around us know that we know our Bible so well to fool those around us with our great love for God's word all the while missing a relationship with God himself. We can worship the word without worshipping the God of the word. Or we can abuse the word. We do this when we take it out of context, when we use it to push our own personal agendas, when we apply things incorrectly so that they benefit us. We take a verse that looks really nice, sounds nice, stick it on a mug and sell it wholesale, right? I can do all things through him who gives me strength. A verse that doesn't talk about the local football tournament as much as it does about being able to endure torture as a form of persecution. For I know I have the plans for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. A verse which we take encouragement from, but which was written to Israel after they were captured Their homes were destroyed, they were carried off into exile in Babylon and instead of God promising to them that he would take them back to their land, he was telling them to stay put, You most of you will die here, but that's okay because I still have a plan for you. Or perhaps more insidiously, particularly this is a problem from men who have abused passages like Ephesians 5, verse 22 and 23. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife. Dot, dot, dot. And this is used as an argument to make our wives essentially slaves of the husband. All the while forgetting the rest of the verse, the dot, 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 that says, as Christ is the head of the church and the saviour of the body. So yes, wives, submit to your husbands, but husbands, you are to come and die, like Jesus did for the church to sacrifice your life for the sake of your wife. Yes, wife, submit, but husband, come and die. So we can worship the word, we can abuse the word, or we can simply ignore the word. And I finish with this. We can ignore scripture in one of two ways. The non-believer simply ignores scripture's relevance to their life, thinking the Bible is completely irrelevant, just never picking up a Bible, living without any reference to God's word. Um, scripture calls to come and worship God, but the book stays shut, and so they just never hear the message. But I think the more dangerous thing for Christians today that's happening more and more is that we just ignore the parts of Scripture that are too controversial for us to deal with, things that clash with our world. We're happy to submit to the areas where the Bible agrees with the good morals of our society. Love your neighbour, don't steal, don't murder people, look after the earth, care for the refugee. But more and more the Bible is being silenced on issues of sexual morality, on marriage, on the exclusive call of Christianity where it says Jesus is the only way for you to get to heaven, to be saved, right? Even in the church, the doctrine of eternal hell for all those who reject Christ is increasingly being questioned. 
Friends, do we not feel the pull of this on our hearts? Don't we hear the silent voices in our heads that say, does it really matter if I bend a little bit on this issue? What difference does it make if I don't quite hold to what the Bible says here? Who does it hurt anyway if I skip this difficult passage, if I ignore this call to come and worship God? Friends, it matters. Because when we do that, we are denying God the glory and the worship that rightly belongs to him. We can ignore these things, we can, but to do so would be missing out on God's truth. To not have his radiant light shine on our lives. To not actually develop the correct fear of the Lord that brings joy to the heart. To not live the life that comes from living under the Lord's trustworthy instruction. And it is for this reason, I think, that the psalmist ends this psalm with a prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is a prayer from the psalmist that he would hear the call of nature calling him to come and worship God, that he would hear the voice of Scripture calling him to trust God as his rock and saviour. It is a prayer that, he, that is asking God to, uh, to open his eyes and his ears, to listen to these messages and to respond correctly. And it is my prayer for us here today that we too may hear the call of nature calling us to worship God and the voice of Scripture calling us to trust in Jesus as our rock and saviour so that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts may also be beautiful to God. So hear the song of nature calling you to worship God and hear the song of scripture calling you to worship God and come and worship God with your life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that... Uh, we have these beautiful psalms that remind us of all the ways in which you call us to come and worship you, of all the ways in which the world speaks of your glory and majesty, of all the ways we can come and respond by worshipping you, submitting our lives to you, turning to you. We pray, Lord, that we might not... Uh, we, that we will hear these, these calls to come and worship you, that we will not ignore it or abuse it or even worship the call itself, but that we will come to worship the one we are being called to worship. May our hearts respond in worship to you. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.